This is Roodkapje Radio. De podcast on art, music, research, hamburgers and all else that moves young creatives through the world. Directly inspired by the hamburger community of art residents Jill Baldwin, Danielle Hogendorn, Lavinia Xauza, Erik Peters en Irie Zamblé. En door Hamburg Community of Life programmers Louisa Teigman, Arjuna Vlasblom, Mitchell Quits, Ruta Genita en Lodewijk van Dijk. Hi and welcome to Roodkapi Radio. This is podcast part four, the fairy tale in which we move deeper into the protagonists of our current program, Once Upon a Time. My name is Menno Feister. I am the head of the Hamburg Community of Art, uh, Roodkapi's artist in residency program. And joining me today are Hamburg Community artist Danielle Hogedorn and playwright, writer and transmedial expressionist Tommy Ventevogel. Welcome. Hello. Hello, yeah. Um, can I ask you to introduce yourself briefly? Uh, what is it that you do? Let's start with you, Tommy. Yes. Uh, well, you already gave me a lot of credits by uh, introducing me with so many titles, of course. But yes, basically, I'm a playwright and I studied writing for performance. And what I always say is I write for and then I sum up all these things in my life that I do. Because writing is at the base of uh, a lot of stuff. And yes, in this case, I'm uh, also writing uh, a fairy tale, of course, uh, but also I write for uh, a graphic novel and I write for plays like theater companies across the country that uh, need a writer because they can't fix their head around the subject, so they need a professional. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, that's that's basically what I do. It's very broad, but uh, writing is the center. And this was your first fairy tale? Well, that's an interesting question, if it is. <laughs> I'm writing uh, uh, a lot of things based on fairy tales or reflecting on fairy tales, but when something is a fairy tale, precisely, is always a little bit of the question. Well, yeah. let's go. And you, Daniela? Uh, I'm Daniela Hoogdorn, and uh, I'm a visual artist. Um, basically, I started with painting, now I am multidisciplinary, doing ceramics, drawings, murals, uh, whatever. Uh, I studied at the HKU and graduated in 2014 and have been making a lot of art ever since. Started a residency at Rotkapje in Rotterdam um, a year and a half ago now Mm -hmm. and uh, still doing that and this is, uh, well... uh, Currently, I'm working on this with the collaboration with Tommy. So I think we're diving into that topic today. Nice, because that would be my first question is Tommy already gave a little bit away. You gave a little bit away, Daniela. Uh, but how did you end up together at this table today? We met on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, that, that is how <laughs> the art world is not now like this. Yeah. Everything's like that. No. <laughs> Uh, I think it's because I started um, this project. My, my work is very fairy tale-like, so there is always a link to uh, uh, storytelling and fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's becoming more clear. Um, well, as, as the work is progressing and developing, and now it's, I, I thought let's do a show about fairy tales because it's nice to work with um, with a with a, a frame like that and I, I like to work within a frame or a topic 
So for this show, we chose uh, a fairy tale and uh, also with the HCL, the Hamburger Community of Life, which is a, a group of programmers that we Excellent. collaborate with. And uh, it's also easy for them to work with. And I, I thought, let's start with Once Upon a Time and then like everything can happen. And then we came up with the idea of writing a fairy tale and then we needed a writer. And there, that's how we... Hello. Hello. Hey. <laughs> that's how we found Tommy. Yeah. Also, because I think Tommy and I are... Um, we uh, have a, a, kind of the same view on a lot of things, uh, according animal rights and yeah. animal well-being. And I think that's very important also in my work. And uh, I think that's, that's where the match started. Yeah. And I agree. So the match is basically uh, the topic is very uh, uh, close to my heart. Although fairy tales is not my regular job, so I normally write a lot of uh, science fiction. Uh, but of course, science fiction could also be the blueprint for a fairy tale. But indeed, the work that Daniela makes uh, really uh, uh, looks like the inside of my brain uh, <laughs> sometimes, cool. and that, and that's uh, super nice to have been asked. Uh, to write a fairy tale but then of course and it's also a very difficult question because what do is you a fairy tale it is a fairy tale but it's also in this case a fairy tale where animals are the uh, main focus and um, the non-human the human animals are not really uh, inside of this realm so that's interesting of, of course to give uh, all these animals that you for years then do action for and animal rights then to give them voices and what do they say then yeah to make them characters in a story yeah because what i really like in your work is that you give them characters with their eyes and their image so you indeed are uh, asked to go inside of their souls but yeah. that's in a visual way and it's very interesting to uh, then also uh, give text to it Sometimes it's even, maybe even destroying a, a little bit of the abstract, beautiful image where you can just watch and... Of the mystery. It, yeah, the mystery. Yeah. And then you make it concrete. Uh, but it's also a very nice assignment as a writer to then go for and to really pull through and make something out of it. So I'm curious, what, what do you think uh, is, a, is a fairy tale? Yeah. I really like the Dutch word, so I think we should really... Sprookje. Sprookje, yeah. Sprookje. Sprookje. And, and so what is a sprookje? When you see these letters in Dutch, it's almost like a spookje, which is a ghost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and the R sound in this word uh, gives it, gives it a, a, a travel or you dive deep into. And because the English fairy tale sounds a bit... yeah. Child, a bit uh, like yeah, like fairies or, or, and uh, yeah, glittery. very close to fantasy or yeah, to fantasy. classic fantasy. But I think that the German uh, language or the the, the because sprookje comes from sproken and sproken is is folklore, t uh, I think storytelling or something yeah. like that. And yeah, wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, because I I looked that up once. I'm not sure if I'm completely right, but I'm 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 close. Yeah, but it feels also very, of course, the Dutch word sprookje has, indeed, you, then you feel that you can go, go more deep than a fairy tale where a fairy has something, some magical enchantment. I don't like and, fairies. No, yeah. Of course, <laughs> this is only a word. Mm -hmm. We now, now focus only on the word, but what is uh, a fairy tale to me? The, the original question. Uh, I think it's a way to enchant, to tell a story w within enchantment. 
uh, where you uh, in, in a bit like science fiction where you just use another world and another language to tell something in a poetic way that mm -hmm. you need a bigger crowd to hear uh, and I think there's a lot of Disneyfication in Sprookjes going yeah, Disney on. Disney used in. a lot of Sprookjes yeah. Uh, yeah. for their movies and yeah. I mean, I, I think most. I just talked about that with Menno. Like most of the fairy tales of the most of the movies that Disney made are based on original Grimm uh, Sprookjes. Yeah. So. But mostly like the positive. Yeah, the nice <laughs> ones. The nice yeah, ones. not the, the cruel <laughs> ones. <laughs> no. I think they should make a really gruesome one, like horrific. A, re a real one. Yeah. Of course, a, a, a fairy tale also uh, has this uh, uh, a learning curve or teaching children mm -hmm. uh, a, a truth or a path or a moral compass for what is good and what is bad. Yeah, I or think that's lacking now nowadays yeah. in stories for kids. Yeah. I think that's very uh, disturbing if you, you put on the television, for example, now and you see a television show for kids. Like I used to grow up with Waterschapsheuvel and mm -hmm. with Alfred Jodokus Kwak, which was quite cruel, but it had a very strong moral message. Uh, the same with the fairy tales that I've been read. And I think that's disappearing slowly into animated happiness and, and, um, and yeah. only happiness and then colors and bang, bang, bang fast. Yeah. And we're losing a lot of the essence of a, of a real... Uh, uh, moral aspect in that, I think. Yeah, it becomes Such a bit a more superficial. Yeah. So it's uh, all the layers and the multiple ways of to read or to listen are disappearing and it becomes easier. As if we think that children these days are stupid, are getting yeah. more stupid and don't understand multiple layers or abstraction, ab abstract thinking. Yeah. Uh, I see that, I feel also that it's disappearing or we're too old and we don't. <laughs> well, I also think that there's not a lot of new fairy tales uh, uh, no, yeah. like being written. So uh, do people actually write new fairy tales like you? Or is it out of fashion? Or is it just that the, good, the old ones are so good that we just keep reusing them? Yeah, of course, a fairy tale, because it's so childlike or it is, and it's also old sometimes, it has this kitschy feeling and I think mm -hmm. the, the subject of kitsch will come back in this uh, talk later yeah. also uh, concerning your work some, but that will come later but I think for writers and for myself maybe also it is a genre it's genre writing that is not appealing to like the Why not? to a lot of writers to go in to deeply because it's too kitsch? yeah maybe I don't know for me I think I, I mostly dive to science fiction and science fiction also is genre writing and it is also the narrative of a science fiction story can also very be very much be a fairy tale of course because in science fiction I can also write uh, a moral compass or mm -hmm. show what a current moral compass in extremists will become and but that's I not your main concern well if you write no. a science fiction the, the moral compass is not the the, the structure Oh yeah, I, I think it's more about the. the but if I the, if I may ask, I mean, we're just discussing, for instance, as Daniela rightly said, I think, that a lot of the fairy tales that are still being read today mm -hmm. are actually quite old. They're like classics; everyone knows them. They're part of the collective memory. Do you like? How do you navigate the challenge then to write a new fairy tale? Because of course, on the one hand, yes, it's genre writing, so the structure of it is quite clear on forehand, and you have to sort of come up with the story to fit into that. But I also wonder that 
I mean, whatever you write and you call it a fairy tale, it automatically relates to yeah. whatever is already out there. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Also, because it has, it is such a famous writing ballet. ballet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can use these archetype, archetypical uh, sentences. Of course, this entire program is already called Once Upon a Time. Uh, and you uh, you have these classics, classic uh, things that you can put into it, like archetypical sentences that I, in the end, didn't really use much. Well, the forest. Yeah, 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 yeah. We used, it, but we both used the forest. It, yeah. was, it wasn't really my decision and, or your decision, one hundred percent. It was like uh, the forest might be the place where it all takes place. I think it has <laughs> the forest. The forest is always very mystic uh, environment. So yeah. Uh, also because I live very close to a forest now and I don't know it's as soon as you step into a forest it's it's a fairy tale yeah so I think that's always a nice starting point but it's very typical topics that keep returning in fairy tales but I think also the animals uh, talking animals and and animals with behaviorism that we can relate to yeah uh, to translate certain like problems like like happen like what happened in your fairy tale yeah uh, I'm I'm very intrigued by the fairy tales that that are, but maybe because I'm intrigued by animals that that have animals in it, like the goose with the golden eggs and like Cinderella has, uh, not Cinderella, uh, Snow White. Yeah, has all the animals, and I think that makes it a lot nicer. But maybe because I like animals, so yeah. But you're right. The the, the forest and the the total concept already have a lot of magical archetypical fairy tale like thinking and what I also like is that uh, I feel we're both now in the Netherlands and I know from our flatlands mm-hmm. that if you do nothing and the farmers will stop with uh, 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 with using the land then in the end the entire of the net entirety of the Netherlands will become forest again yeah so if you do nothing with this green monotone uh, 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 grass it will become a forest so thinking about a future for us or animals or for whoever will of course be a forest we should reforest yeah the netherlands yeah yeah Yeah. maybe if the the end is near like in in the fairy tale and everything's doom and doomsday comes and we just let nature take over again i think that would be interesting to see what all these buildings and structures would turn into a giant forest and the animals will just leave like take back their their natural habitat yeah I think it would be interesting to see that. Yeah, and that's also a bit of where my uh, uh, writing took off then. Yeah. By thinking what will happen if indeed all animals are free and have to take upon the wild again. Mm-hmm. Also the domesticated animals that are really used. Will they survive? Yeah, that's their question now. So yeah. that, that is their path now into this forest. And this, this is also very scary about the forest. Yeah. That they cross the line of the old protective or non-protective because a lot of domesticated animals are really in a bad position of course yeah, I, I think my future. dog would die <laughs> within two days yeah and that's that was what I found very interesting because if, if you look at all the animals that are domesticated by humans then they have a new relationship with humankind and they are all kind of happy and playful mm-hmm. and curious so if you even if you go to a very big uh, animal farm where there is like uh, um, uh, 1,000 
pigs there. Yeah. Still, the pig will uh, come to you with some or look at you with some curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and they trust humans also. Yeah, because they're bred yeah. for generations to become to pupify them, like you, yeah. you, you name it. Uh, and make them more friendly but in we were taking away more and more of the instinct but i think that's happening to people as well <laughs> uh, we are being popified and drifting away further and further from nature yeah. and our natural instincts and we're forgetting to like feel or smell or listen and i think that's maybe where artists kind of like but is this also why you are very keen on using animals in your work is that where that comes from? I think it also comes from my background as um, and, and my child, childhood for, for a part of it uh, because I grew up um, and I felt very close to animals and I had animals and instead of like playing with whatever we had inside or as you see children with tablets and shit now like nowadays <laughs> like I, I, I had a little pony and then the next year I asked for a pig and it just kept... Uh, I felt really close to the animals. I could connect, and I I still have that. I have the feeling that I that I can I can feel their energy or something. I don't know why. Uh, and and that's what really attracts me to the animals. And I think people um, uh, of like I said before in uh, in an interview, like drifted very far from that that intu uh, intuitive feeling uh, of energy of of each other but also of their surroundings um, and I think if we may I don't know if that's because people start to living uh, closer to each other in in, um, in areas where nature is very well mm -hmm. how do you say that um, like far away like far away yeah, yeah it's, it, it is far away artificial and artificial and planned and and scheduled and the only way we enjoy a park is if we can get wasted on the only summer day with thousands of people in one fucking tiny part of, of a park. And then I'm like, is this really where we're going to? Like, And if you then see that people are getting burned out and stressed and they take a walk in the forest, uh, it actually it, it clears up their minds and they become healthier. And I've, um, of course, we, we're getting more, more and more people on this planet. Um, uh, I'm creating one myself, <laughs> but I think we should really think, rethink our ways. And and I I think Corona also helped uh, in a way because people started walking again and and uh, finding nature. And and I hope we we keep that attitude and and see the importance of it, and maybe bring it back into our lives and and, and adapt um in a way that we don't try to force nature out of our lives but bring it back and coexist mm -hmm. and tommy for you because i know from daniela of course that animals play a very big part in her work like all together also in her personal life i know a little bit about your personal connection to animals and animals animal rights in particular mm -hmm. but do they also quite frankly pop up in your writing or does that really depend on what you write and what you write it for yeah, it really depends. So I don't have a lot of animals that become characters in my work, but I have a lot of characters who become beast-like or become mm -hmm. animal-like, and they go back to this role of what is my impulse and what is my na natural way of being fitting in an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So that is that plays a big role. Uh, so I try. This is my big. Uh, uh, difference between my writing and my activism 
so in my activism, I only talk about animals uh, uh, mainly, and in my writing, I'm trying to keep away from this because I also noticed that when it uh, becomes one too much, then I become a pr predictable writer also a bit. Mm -hmm. So I have two uh, <laughs> uh, two uh, compartments in my head, and animal rights is another one. But I agree, or I like what Daniela also said. I feel similar. To, like, like animals are friends, or animals are uh, uh, a, a mirror to your soul, or a mirror or, or a glass into theirs. I know from animal rights also if you say, uh, uh, because a lot of people keep saying, yeah, well, eating meat is natural and that is the way to go. Mm -hmm. But if if you have a baby and you give them, show them an apple and a pig, then they will play uh, with the pig and eat the apple. And you never see a baby uh, hitting the pig and, and we're killing also not, the pig. We're, kill we're, we're teaching our kids to be friendly to animals yeah. and then we feed them animals. And I, I really don't understand why we cannot see it for what it is um, which is it's like a, a holocaust for animals yeah, we should be we should choose between or uh, telling that we're friendly it's mass murder or that we're all enemies yeah. but then we should learn the, the kids also this but yeah the natural instinct of both these domesticated animals as the humankind is to find friendship in each other There's uh, this new law coming up now. Did you read about that? Uh -huh. uh, yeah. Of letting animals behave naturally. Yeah. But then I don't understand why, <laughs> why we would be let them behave naturally and then like breed them for consumption and then eat them in the end. Like, what's the point? Yeah, it's a very interesting law that we have. So the law is already a bit older, but this is new uh, uh, lines in the in the law. Uh, and this is the big discussion that we've seen in zoos and in uh, pets and in the uh, of course they are first when it comes to animal rights to get rights the animals that are lost in rights is of course the animals in slaughterhouses mm -hmm. uh, but of course when you make a law then it's very weird to discriminate between the one and the other yeah but you you can't but because if you make a point out of locking up pigs and people locking up rabbits for example yeah. but then don't touch the rabbits yeah. because they're pets yeah there's a word but for this also eh? this it's called what's uh, the word speciation speciation or uh, my like, mom like does di it. discrimination and speciesism okay so you can uh, uh, discriminate between species so if you're born as a uh, as a dog then you have all these rights that you <laughs> don't get when you're a calf <laughs> It's so strange because I, um, my, my mother is a big animal lover, she claims. And then her dogs are like children. So they, one is even carried around in a stroller. Um, and, and they sleep in a bed. But then one evening she, she started eating a meatball. And I'm like, but what's, what's the difference? Yeah. You cannot call yourself an animal lover and, and choose one to be your friend. And the other one has to be food. And yeah. this is something very... Well, I, I don't know where your act activism started. I think it's very interesting to me. Like, how did this start for you? Yeah, it started... As a kid, I already felt the difference between uh, uh, animals that had, like, no life, so like a lamb, mm -hmm. or, like, young animals. Uh, and, and I felt a difference, like most of people that think, ah, but all the other ones had a good life and then they die. Mm -hmm. Of course, now I know that's not true, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, I felt this activism that, 
okay, but young animals should really get a chance. So I had this activism for that as my moral ethical uh, compass. But mostly I became uh, uh, acquainted to this field by uh, environmental rights. So I saw okay. this Cowspiracy documentary and I but thought... That, that's not that old. That's no, quite it's recent. Not, yeah, yeah, well, it is older than we think. But How old is it? Four, five, six years ago. Okay. It is quite recent. Yeah. But, but all, the, all the other activism I get, got from Watership Down uh, and Babe and uh, Bambi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, feeling uh, on the Lion King. Well, well all, all these stories are, of course, yeah. about... Uh, so the stories you got uh, yeah. got to see as a kid. Yeah. But this is not the stories that they're showing nowadays. No. Well, Lion King still exists, obviously, but... Uh, yeah. like, but then to... to come back perhaps a little bit to the fairy tale mm -hmm. it's interesting now that we go from a deep discussion about animal rights and we're back now at Bambi and the Lion <laughs> King and we're moving Finally. slowly into yeah. Disney yeah. and into the fairy tales again yeah. um, like I, I wonder if there's if there's this kind of link between also Disneyfication on the one hand and the way we relate to animals because Yes, animals, we, we are taught they are friends, mm -hmm. but we are also taught they are sort of magical creatures that can talk and that can, can, can enact all these mm -hmm. stories that has, have a certain morale. And I'm kind of wondering, I still, I still struggle to sort of figure out exactly, for instance, with Daniela, how these animals all come to play a part in, in her work. It's, it's mostly and farm animals, yeah, actually. Yeah, and, and how also they come to embody also very human stories. Yeah. I vividly remember your painting of the two rabbits or of the two horses in killing a, a rabbit in a car. That's a very human story in a way. In a Ferrari. Yeah, in a Ferrari. <laughs> in a prancing horse Ferrari, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that painting's called uh, Horses on, uh, on Ketamine uh, because uh, Ketamine was such a popular drug among uh, my friends. <laughs> and, um, but it's actually t it's used to tranquilize horses and, and elephants and mm -hmm. whatever. And then you have these two horses that sit in a car uh, and they're on ketamine. So it's basically they're on in a trip and they kill a rabbit and um, it's big. In, they drive a big red Ferrari. And I actually, it, it, it just came from the ketamine <laughs> and then I just started and the, the, the horses become murderers of, of another animal and, and they're they're very sorry and, and they're shocked you can see them looking around in the car like what the fuck did we just do um, and I think that's where storytelling begins in, in a lot of my work and paintings mm -hmm. so there is just something that I think is weird or, or um, and then I just let the animals translate it and if, if animals tell it, it becomes fairy tale like um, instantly because if I would let two humans kill a rabbit in a car we would just be like, oh, well, that happened again. Uh, but if two horses do it, it's like, whoa, but horses are, why would they kill a rabbit? And it become a, a strange setting. And I think that's uh, something I like to play with in my work mm -hmm. um, to to estrange the, the, the situation and, and turn the roles around uh, to make people think. About... What if we act like that, or what if animals act like yeah. that? Yeah. What if animals would act like us? Mm -hmm. What would we do then? What if they take <laughs> over? What if they would kill us? What if they would hunt us? Yeah. Uh, maybe that's not so nice. Uh, and I think if you, it's it's there's always some humor in it. So I try to do it in a 
you think it's funny, but then some people are like, whoa, it's it's uh, it's darkish, and then uh, why is their head chopped off, or why is there a, uh, even though it's all painted in pink and purple, and then they're like, but the horse is missing his body. I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> we do that too. Uh, and and that's um, uh, I don't know. I think it's maybe also to shock a little bit, but not in a not in a cru- cruelly black mm-hmm. world way. Because if I would make it all black and very dark, it's it's not. And then it becomes really kitsch. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> then it's too kitsch. And I think you can play with kitsch, but you have to stay on a certain boundary. And now we're at kitsch. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, what I hear a lot of uh, uh, people say when you uh, talk about animal rights, they go back to the wild and show that in the wild there is no cruelty and there is no moral compass in the wild. Yeah. But that's interesting because that, of course, has, 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 has its own place. Yeah. But I really like that you then do uh, use the animal that is not known for being a mass murderer. For murderer. <laughs> yeah. If it would be a tiger, it would be too... That would yeah, be yeah, yeah, indeed. So uh, it's interesting. Why, you know the paintings uh, people do, like a lot of hobbyists, they paint uh, savanna paintings or savanna yeah. animals, mm-hmm. and it's instantly kitsch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I I think that's because they they paint the predators as predators, uh, and it's it's always like uh, and it's very. I think farm animals are are not that uh, romanticized. They're just everyday animals and we don't think they're beautiful or special because they are food or smart that's or also smart but a pig is smarter yeah. than your dog yeah, for example so <laughs> people don't yeah but yeah, yeah. that's so stupid but to pe- justify this they they think it's one-dimensional animals it's yeah. it is uh, not smart animals they're very dumb and they have no uniqueness no but this is what people learn by pets There is this beautiful passage also in uh, Jonathan Seffron Foer's book, uh, Eating Animals, where he quotes someone else, but of course now I don't know the name, but uh, this phase where people started having living closer to dogs and to cats mm-hmm. is actually the moment where we start seeing, hey, well, all these dogs have personalities. Yeah. And you can even see after an action that they are grumpy or that they become happy. excited or happy. And then you start seeing, oh, well, all these animals are individuals. Yeah. And there it becomes very interesting to also, because this is the same for uh, factory farming and factory animals. They are all, all individuals. But in the narrative, they, the sector, doesn't look we at this, we this don't, way. Yeah, we don't give them faces or personalities no. No, or indeed. characters. And I, I recently adopted a pig that was in a very bad situation, and I called him Wim. And uh, Wim is a character. Yeah. Uh, he's even more a character than my dog, and he's he's friends with the dog now, and it's it's super funny to see what he does on a daily basis, and uh, he's super crazy, and I think and smart. He's actually more smart than the dog. Yeah. And it's so funny to see that people completely look over that fact and and romanticize all these beautiful predator animals in the wild and that's that's all very well s- special to us and we go on safari and then we watch a, to- uh, a lion kill a, a, an antelope and we're like oh my god this is nature but then closer to home it becomes if someone for example um, 
would go to a pig's table. That's normal, right? Or or we just don't look the other way. What do you mean by going to to watch this? Well, people don't yeah. watch it because no. it's we 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 look the other way. Yeah. But if it's in the walls, we think it's it's nature. But what yeah. we are doing, well, what is that? Yeah, and they a lot of people call this nature also. Yeah. So they say, yeah, this natural. Yeah, but it is. Not, yeah, it's natural for us to 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 act this way. Yeah, but it's made. Yeah. Indeed, it's domesticated, and that's what I also want to use in the uh, in the fairy tale, to have all these problems as ingredients. Yeah. Uh, domesticated versus the wild, or becoming wild, and what happens then if mm-hmm. you if you see that the forest has its own rules of wildness, and there is uh, you have to become less less ethical, or you have to become yeah. wild, and you have to lose all this. Uh, easy life because you're getting into the hard life and what happens then and i think if uh, we would have to become wild we we wouldn't be able to like provide most of the people would just die (laughs) i think we are so domesticated ourselves that we cannot provide in the wild no indeed because the spirit The the big story in our heritage is of course if we are hunter or hunter garret uh, gatherers. Yeah. But the story basically turns down looks at, at, at this question as in we're more of gatherers and hunting is like the extra to it. Yeah. And if we can't gather uh, uh, the ed- edible plants or recognize the edible stuff uh, around us. Then It's, hunting is not enough. Then, then hunting is very, very, very uh, uh, small because we are have competitors also in the wild of mm-hmm. animals that are stronger and uh, and better than us. Yeah. The only thing that's for the human race actually made us once on being on top of the food chain is uh, that we're able to work together in bigger groups than chimps. So yeah. we can work together in a group of 150 people to make something out of it. And this for chimpanzees, for instance, is uh, too big of a group. Yeah, so it's 20, right, or something. Yeah, so they have smaller yeah. groups uh, with their own pol- politics also. Mm-hmm. And we, but they are way, way, way stronger. If you would have 20 chimps versus 20 people, it will be a, a, a total slaughter. loss, a slaughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Humankind will not survive this, so. No. Uh, But that is the only force that we have because if you're uh, without weaponized, of course, without fire weapons against a big ox or against a lion or even against a bull, I think it's not a, another question. Yeah. So in strength, the animals are... The winners. The winners and on top of that pyramid. Yeah. I'm I'm now doing this uh, hunter series in my paint in my work, and mm-hmm. I'm making all these paintings about the the fox hunt. Mm-hmm. And I created these three big hunters and riders, and I think also like the, the hunting team is very interesting because we think we have to um, we have to keep the balance, but mm-hmm. nature is completely fine with balancing itself. If we would just let it go, it would balance out. But we are restricting areas. We are restricting uh, populations, and I think it's. Um, I also really like the costumes. For <laughs> apart from that, I think mm-hmm. it's 
all the costumes are even though it's such a like horrible act i i i think the ceremonial part of it uh, has something very um aesthetic yeah but it's just, i think it in all altogether it's quite a strange phenomenon mm-hmm. yeah. in the sense that i mean even coming from you know the 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 the, the things that you just discussed is the idea that what actually is then nature because now if we discuss nature it becomes sort of detached from what we do as humans so we as humans are guilty of unnatural behavior to the point where we celebrate for instance hunting foxes with no particular reason mm-hmm. but then i would almost ask the question what does that make us because aren't we also still somewhere nature or did we completely lose that I think hunting for fun is is more of a we see it as a sport and it's it's a game and I think people like like games and we like to win games and and the the I mean it's not a fair game not at all not at all the fox doesn't stand a chance there's 12 12 or 20 dogs uh while like obsessed dogs that have been starved before they start hunting and then uh, we have these guys with giant horses and we have guns so also with the people that hunt on the savannah for example what's the fun in winning a game that that you you were never gonna lose uh yeah i, I think that's a very interesting topic to reflect on i don't know how yeah, you think about that then ri- literally becomes a ritual it's where, a ritual where, where the end is already set and you already know the ending and the end picture that you yeah. take, take it's, to it's your about Facebook. it's a, it's the same like taking a photo on instagram right and everything has to be the best and the, the greatest and the funniest and the, we're showing all the best uh, aspects of our lives and and the same with the hunt we have to we need this picture with this animal yeah and the rest is just ritual or or show off maybe but it's yeah I, I like I like the the to think about that like why why we do that yeah because it's it's in my opinion at least it's always very sort of man versus nature mm-hmm. um, and it's very difficult to sort of reverse that way of thinking even though for me at least I do try not to consider myself against nature even though in a lot of ways probably in the things that I do I probably am um, mm-hmm. But it also comes down a bit to, I think, what the fairy tale that Tommy wrote is, is partially about. It's about how conflict in nature or how struggle in nature is also, is always there. It's not like going back to nature means that we go back to this sort of fairy tale. There we go. This, <laughs> this sort of fairy tale paradise where everything's just peaceful and status quo and everybody lives happily ever after. It's it's it is more brutal than that. But I still struggle Definitely. to put these two things together. And it's uh, diverse indeed. So conflict is the normal way, is the natural way. And by making stuff into a ritual with a known end and uh, amplifying this into like millions uh, is our big problem. We are not able to see diversity or or, or, uh, different kinds of green. So we think that... Uh, we simplify nature also by oh, if it's green then it's good but we totally don't understand that you need to have diverse plants in a, a forest for different uses and uh, for instance in the bee colony uh, you know that there is like in the Netherlands 350 uh, kinds or races or, or species, or f- f- species variations uh, 
but we think ah i've seen honeybees around so it's probably uh, uh, going going well right <laughs> <laughs> but we don't see the picture of the that the, the the big population of the one is actually killing out or leaving out the variation and that's in the end a big problem yeah uh, and same Extinction for plants is, is a big yeah. problem i think yeah. that's also to give animals a stage mm-hmm. Uh, I think by by storytelling you can give them a voice and a stage and maybe uh, make them relatable also for children and I think that's why we should start writing more fairy tales Mm -hmm. again or make it popular again I don't care how uh, so we can give the animals uh, a voice to the children because I think our generation is is lost Uh, my grandma's generation (laughs) is super super lost Mm -hmm. so uh, she still thinks you need milk for healthy bones um, and and I can't I can't make her think otherwise. I've I've tried. So I think by aiming on on storytelling, and and re, um, like uh, how do you say that? Opvoeding is kom niet op. Educating. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, not pregnancy brain. <laughs> uh, re-educating uh, the the new generation. We can actually, and and I think storytelling and art mm-hmm. could be a very important aspect in that. Because and, and I think in art it's less literal, and in education we can we can actually re reeducate, and and I think we by writing a fairy tale like you did or or by making a painting we we can maybe reach some people, mm-hmm. and I feel like that 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 actually happens. So so I think we we should start a trend. What do you, what do you think, yeah. Tommy? I think I totally agree. We should start this trend. And storytelling is very powerful because stories stay with you. And images also. So this combination of uh, stories and images, yeah. uh, visual arts are really, really making, giving the picture to uh, next generations or to our generation or whatever generation. Yeah. Storytelling, storytelling is key. I think that's where the, the sprookjes eventually uh, mm-hmm. uh, originated from, is that, that children were being told these stories by their, their caretakers or um, teachers or whatever examples they had. Um, yeah, and, there's and there's, the always, mor- a, there's yeah. always a sort of educative, it's ed- moral, it's educative, more yeah. It, like, and don't, I, I don't want knock to on the door of a, of a candy house in the middle of the forest. Yeah. Always a bad yeah. idea. <laughs> well, I want to add one uh, uh, producer of fairy tales also to bring this to the table because mm-hmm. I don't think that we as artists are the only ones ter- telling, for, t- telling uh, fairy tales. I also think that the marketing world ah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, is also telling sto- using storytelling and using fairy tales. To, to yeah to yeah. tell us the the wrong stuff so we're actually now using uh, the language again to set the facts straight so they mislead people yeah because if you see these trucks going uh, uh, through the city with like a massive amount of pigs in it or you walk next to uh, uh, across to a butcher you see smiling a smiling pig. yeah you see a smiling pig or you see a pig even with a thumbs up which is anthropomorph- <laughs> anthropomorphic uh, visual yeah. aspect to make us think that they are happy. Yeah. yeah. Or, you, or you know, of course, all these commercials where you see cows <laughs> in the green. Just With chocolate giving, milk. Yeah, yeah, chocolate milk or just <laughs> giving milk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So me as a kid, I always thought, oh yeah, uh, a, a cow gives milk like uh, um, a or how do you call these? Uh, like a camel. Uh, like a camel, yeah. yeah. Like a camel 
keeps water uh, uh, within the body structure and the logical. I thought that to cap it for yeah. us, <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. But but for cows, <laughs> n- then later on you learn. Uh, you need to impregnate them every year, take away the calf, and in Dutch is a very nice word for this: outmelken, so milk them until it's not possible anymore, mm-hmm. uh, mm. and then make them pregnant again and make. And it's a very sick world if you tell kids, yeah, every year. What uh, if we would tell yeah. the real story? Yeah. What if we would tell our children what's yeah, really this happening? Is, this is, of course, a lot of people think this is horrible. That's cruel. Like, because yeah. we have been looking away for so long. We've been told this. Yeah, but you don't tell a kid that the, 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 the little piece of whatever. My mom used to tell us that with Christmas that we ate chicken. Because chicken is not so bad. Chicken is all right. <laughs> Chickens don't have feelings. Mm. Uh, but actually, we were eating rabbits. Oh, really? I would have never eaten a rabbit at that age because I had a few rabbits. Now I have chickens. I don't eat chicken. I don't eat any animal. But what if we would just tell kids what it is? Yeah. And that's interesting because we are not allowed to show them those images. No. Because then it's... Uh, 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 traumatizing. It's, it's X-rated or it's uh, it's traumatizing yeah. indeed. No, but it's... I mean, it, there is there is this sort of very strange dynamic. I mean, I remember a, a former professor of mine who had uh, kids in the age of like five, six, seven, who said, I'm taking them to like the petting zoo, the uh, the kinderboerderij, mm-hmm. yeah. um, to show them like what chickens look like, what goats look like what all these that all these like they ate meat but did they but did he show them the meat yeah just to, to sort of make sure that they understood that whatever was in these plastic boxes these colorful plastic boxes was, in the that animal? was actually an animal and that also gets to the point where you think wait a second kids that for example grow up in a very urbanized environment might not even get to see these animals like my grandfather was a farmer so i was around animals plenty uh, whether that's a good or a bad thing, I'll leave that. Yeah. I'll leave that in the middle. But at least I, I had a notion. At least I had a notion of what was going on and what a cow looked like, and that a cow was a creature, mm-hmm. and that in the end it could turn into something that you had in your plate. Yeah. But yeah. there is there is a sense of reality there. I think. I the think it's always good to, good to connect of uh, to show or or uh, uh, kids animals and and. Um, yeah. I'm I'm against keeping animals in captivity like a zoo, but um, we don't have any chance to make kids relate to these animals otherwise. This is the only place where they can see an animal like that, and maybe uh, they can understand that if we if that it's that it's going extinct. Mm And it's it's I think it's they wrote it on all the signs on the zoo now as well. Like the, the 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 level of population yeah, exactly. and, and and extinction, yeah. so in a way it's it's horrible that they're in captivity in in small cages, but maybe it's the only way to show people like this is the one of the last living creatures that that's still there because like you had with the with the uh, farm animals of your mm-hmm. grandpa yeah grandfather yeah yeah um, uh, these kids are never gonna see a real elephant or a, a giraffe. And they're maybe just by not seeing it, it, it makes it less evil to let it go. Yeah, but the strange dynamic with the zoo is that essentially, I think, I don't know, maybe Tommy, you know more about this, but a big part of the population of animals that are currently alive in zoos were born in the zoo. Yeah. And they're only being sort of bred for the excitement that we have seeing, for example, giraffe, which yeah, is... Yeah, but also which educational is, yeah, purposes, but I think. It's very strange. And honestly, I, I go to the zoo quite often. Um, 
but if you if you hear what parents are telling their kids about the, the animals in the zoo th there is a long way to go for education about animals because a lot of the times it's reflecting human emotion on the animals in the zoo mm -hmm. uh, which have nothing to do with what these animals actually go through or how how they behave there uh, well, the, yeah. the interesting things about zoo is that you can really show people now what a depressed animal looks like. <laughs> yeah. no, but really, I, I did uh, volunteering work for the Jane Goodall Foundation and yeah. I did some work at the Gorillas in uh, Blijdorp. Mm -hmm. And Jane Goodall, of course, is the expert of chimps. Yeah. But we uh, ta then talked uh, about the differences. But this was, were also the years where Jane Goodall was backing off a little bit from the zoos. So first she was totally okay with this educational uh, role that zoos have and uh, preservation role that they have. Mm -hmm. But Jane Goodall was like going away from this stump at some point that she found it good because um, in zoos we see, really see also with the gorilla population, Bokito, you see some moves that he makes and poses that he makes, you see depression. Mm -hmm. yep. And that's happening to a lot of animals. And then Blydop is one of the good zoos even. Yeah. So this is one of the zoos where they try really their best to make uh, a natural e-like uh, 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 thing for them. There's and a lot I've of foreign zoos that are really, really bad. But what you see with all the animals, they have to increase the amount, the area mm. of where they You they cannot keep expand the, the area wide enough because yeah, most of indeed, these, yeah. I saw a, a giant, um, um, it's not a, an, some sort of eagle, and then there's a net yeah. over it. Yeah, but the birds are always strange. The, that's the, really that's the worst, but I, I, well, I can't really decide what's the worst. But then these need, these animals need thousands and thousands of kilometers yeah. of habitat. Mm -hmm. And now they're having one tree trunk and, and, and the net over there. They can't even fly. And what I want to add to this world of, very, of zoos, of course, is also documentaries. Yeah. So where you see this uh, nature documentaries, that's that's real education, and that's where you see natural animals in natural uh, habitats. Mm -hmm. And I think David Attenborough is doing a good job now, yeah. lately. Yeah. yeah. Not not in the beginning, he was just glorifying uh, the beauty, <laughs> but now he's also showing our our contri uh, contribution to to the, the downfall. Yeah. And I think that's that's we're going towards an, a more honest uh, point of view. Yeah, first all these documentaries was aesthetics. Yeah. And now it is aesthetics within ecosystems. Yes. And that's way better and better than a zoo. And a zoo in the future can be more of a sanctuary, of course, where yeah. they where you keep animals that, that have that have been abused or had yeah. a horrible life. And dare tell the story and but also show the that documentaries. That are so domesticated that they can't go back. No, indeed. <laughs> because if yeah, well, yeah. I, I went to Jane Goodall Foundation uh, in um, in South Africa, yeah. one of their sanctuaries, and they had one monkey. And, and my friend is an ecologist, and I went there with her. And she's a super fan of Jane Goodall, mm -hmm. and she's a blonde girl. And uh, the the zookeeper or whatever keeper, the sanctuary guy, uh, told her to cover her hair. And she was like, why? Because there is one monkey that hates blonde girls. <laughs> so she didn't have anything to cover her hair. She was like, just mind your head and don't go too close to the fence. And um, his name was Cozy. And the guy was like, oh, Cozy boy. And he was super distressed when he saw my friend. 
and he started running around and he was walking up straight and I was like why did, why is he doing that and the the guy told us that he had been kept in pants little tiny jeans mm -hmm. and his hips deformed because and that's why he walked up straight so he was running towards us straight grabbed the stone and threw it at my friend's head It's, we were laughing, but it's super. Uh, the guy, the, the the monkey was so traumatized, mm -hmm. uh, and he he was he had been kept in an Italian zoo, and his keeper kept him in a caravan and abused him, and it was a blonde woman. Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the smartness of these animals, and and, and it, it really shocked me. I was uh, actually super sad leaving there, but I mean, Cozy could have never been placed back into nature. Yeah. Because he would die. So I think that's maybe a nice... Um, th these people were uh, very, very uh, keen on, on making his life as happy as possible. I think in, in that way we can maybe incorporate um, sanctuaries and, and yeah. not zoos. Indeed, I totally agree. Yeah. But then all our domesticated animals. Yeah. <laughs> like, where do we leave them? This is what the fairy tale was about. This is what the fairy tale was about. Yeah. To... Uh, To, I mean, we're coming up at, uh, I think, uh, the last part of the part of the, the podcast. To refer it back a little bit, because I'm I'm thinking about we've been talking about storytelling, we've been talking about rituals, we've been talking about sanctuaries, and we also talked about a traumatized chimpanzee yes. who's throwing stones. Um, I'm kind of wondering because we've been talking about storytelling as a good way to educate people about how to deal with nature and with animals in a, in a better and a more, more uh, sustainable and a more friendly way. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking we're in this sort of context of art and art is something that I would associate entirely with humans more so than any other creature on this planet. But so in, art a, is in a way, it, there's this kind of disbalance between using stories and art for this because it's actually so far away. I think art is the, the one of the most important aspects of art is to make a point mm -hmm. or to... Um, I think if you just make art because it's beautiful, um, that, that's not the point. I think you need to have a, a point. That's that's also what they teach, teach us in art school. Like you, you kind of... Um, the first few years, you, you rethink who you are why am I who I am? Why do I want to make this? Why do I make what I make? Uh, where does it come from? So you, you ask yourself all these questions to make, uh, to give that wor your work uh, a, a meaning. Or not maybe, a meaning sounds a bit... Bleh. Um, no, but there's a more layered... To have a, to have yeah. A, yeah, to have a point, or at mm -hmm. least to have a point of view or an opinion. And, and we are being taught to think, rethink uh, uh, society, to rethink our role in society, to rethink who we are and why we are the way we are. And I think in, in this is very important to use this in your art and not just... I mean, my grandma paints beautiful flowers. <laughs> but, I mean, I can go onto the street and look at them. I think mm -hmm. the, the, the importance of being a good artist is to make a point and to make people rethink um, or make people see things differently. And if even, it doesn't matter how you do it, with humor, with fairy tales, uh, but to open eyes. What do you think, Tommy? 
Yeah, I also think that this is a nice truth. And I also always think about the word in Dutch that we use for an, uh, a play. We call this a voorstelling. <laughs> and uh, a voorstel is in English back is a proposal. proposal. Mm -hmm. And what I really like to see art as to be being a proposal to whatever. You can of course have different uh, artists with a different worldview and a different art aesthet aesthetics or whatever they want to do. But indeed, making a point or, or doing a proposal is a very interesting way of uh, uh, thinking about art and releasing it to the pub public. Yeah. I mean, just looking at beautiful things is nice, but it's not enough. That's like the documentary of <laughs> David Attenborough. Yeah, that's right? beautiful. Very that's beautiful. Very beautiful, but <laughs> we're missing the point. Yeah, and there is, of course, there has been the art history is rich, rich enough of all these examples of that, like like God is in nature, but also nature is art, and we have this. Mm -hmm. We have Glorif been, glorification. Yeah. And we've been through everything uh, 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 regarding arts, and now we're in this weird uh, new phase, uh, like ending postmodernism with our cynical way of worldviewing, and we enter this metamodernistic age where we think, ah, there should be uh, hope or the new sincerity could be added to art. Uh, and this is indeed the era where you can make points, do proposals. Well, sometimes you glorify uh, things in a painting to yeah. to show people uh, uh, this could be uh, th your fairy tale, tale world. Yeah. To create this beautiful world in which we could live. So you can also make an example and use glorification like that, I think. Yeah, and I think we tried this also with uh, uh, Desire Path, now yeah. the title of the fairy tale and the uh, exposition, of course. Indeed, it is a proposal. It is also something uh, almost like science fiction, like, indeed, it could be like this, and But, then yeah. give it back to the audience. Yeah, how should we behave, or what should we make, or how should we change the system to work towards this new sincere dream that we show? Yeah, I agree. Very beautiful. Well, yeah. not even beautiful. <laughs> A good point. Yeah. That's what it is. Um, thank you, Daniela. Thank you, Tommy, for, You're your, welcome. for your wise words. Um, the exhibition Desire Paths by Daniela is currently on view at Roodkapje from Wednesdays to Saturdays until June 26th. And on June 25th, um, we have a very nice launch event uh, of the Ferris Hill book written by... Tommy, illustrated by Daniela and designed by Fleur van Meeuwen. Um, so that's not to be missed. Uh, thank you also to Operator Radio for having us today. Uh, this was Roodkapje Radio, podcast part four with Daniela Hogedorn and Tommy Ventevogel. My name is Menno Fuister. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Roodkapje Radio, the podcast on art, music, research, hamburgers and all else that moves young creatives to the world. Broadcasting from the heart of Rotterdam. Curious for more? Check our website and socials to stay up to date on new releases. Hope you tune in next time. <laughs>